and welcome back to KHM's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, July 23rd at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Margo Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Good morning. And Tammy Luby of CNN. Hi there. Later in this episode, we'll play my interview with NPR's Pam Fessler, who has written a really fascinating book about the history of the U.S.'s only federal leprosarium. And it's kind of amazing how many parallels there are between the public hysteria over leprosy in the early 1900s and the COVID pandemic today. But first, this week's news. First up, President Trump appears to have changed his tune on the virus, at least for the moment. At a briefing in the White House press room, uh, both Tuesday and Wednesday, he called for everyone to wear masks, something he rarely seems to do in public himself, and acknowledged that the virus situation is likely to get worse before it gets better. Anybody have any theories about this strategy of acknowledging reality? November 2020. I mean, I think somebody sat down with him and said, you're going to lose unless you don't own this and fix it. You know, we don't know how long this tone will last. There was even a difference between day one and day two, where there was sort of more campaign slogan-y kind of stuff embedded in the public health message on day two. But even yesterday, it was a different message than the message we have been hearing before. There was an acknowledgement that we have a crisis on our hands. It's a pandemic. And yet, you know, you wonder, certainly they've been saying that this is not good for your polls for the last weeks, months. I mean, this is, I, I I was sort of surprised, even the, the Fox interview on Sunday, where he was still pretty, you know, is this your responsibility? No, it's not my responsibility. And then suddenly he, you know, seemed like something had gotten through. He has a new campaign manager. And also there was a, uh, you know, I think there was some people from the Hill, Republicans from the Hill who met with him earlier this week. They don't like their numbers either. It's hurting them. I mean, somebody hit him on the head. Not literally. <laughs> it is interesting that he's doing these solo, though, without the doctors. So we'll see how long that goes on. And I, I hesitate to understand what's going on in the president's mind. But I do want to say I've been doing a lot of reporting lately about the kind of political science of who follows public health messages and why. And I do think that whatever has caused this to happen, I think the fact that the president is now encouraging people to comply with public health measures and particularly to wear masks has the potential to make a big difference. So public polling shows most Americans are wearing masks most of the time. You know, we see a lot of coverage of people who fight those mandates or who don't want to do it, but actually it's a pretty widespread behavior. But the people who aren't doing it are very predominantly Republican. And among people that don't trust public health authorities, uh, many of them do trust the president. And so even though we have all of these kind of authoritative public health voices that not for the entirety of the pandemic, but at least for the last couple of months have been speaking with one voice about the need for distancing, mask wearing and other kinds of measures, I think the president joining this chorus could really have an effect on the group of people who haven't gotten this message because they listen to the president and they trust the president in a way that they don't necessarily trust some of these other public public health figures. Really curious to see whether the president wearing a mask in public, allowing himself to be photographed with the mask, and then making these statements, encouraging the use of mask wearing, whether that will have an influence on behavior in public. 
There are also um, some other images, because, I mean, we know from the vaccine wars over past years, the role that celebrities have, sometimes anti-vaxxing. But when the Washington Post the other day had a whole page of masked athletes from a whole bunch of sports. And I think also as people begin to see cultural figures, I think there's potential to draw in cultural figures or celebrities, athletes, to also reinforce the mask wearing in a way that people, I mean, for whatever reason, people take science cues and health cues from celebrities more than they do in some cases from, you know, public health figures. So, so those kinds of messages may also percolate. I mean, it's becoming normative, right? I mean, we had a poll this week and others have had polls this week that even Republicans are becoming more in favor of wearing masks. Yeah, because it's not, I don't think that mask wearing is an issue that is intrinsically partisan, um, you know, we can see sort of historically Republicans tend to be in general slightly more distrustful of scientists than Democrats, but only by relatively small amounts when it comes to medical science. So I think the reason why we're seeing this big partisan split in, split in behavior is somewhat about underlying attitudes, but I think really is largely about the cues that Republicans are getting from their elected officials, and particularly for Trump, who is the most famous and most influential of them. So if he changes his tune, it could have a big effect. Well, good. Let's talk about those other Republicans. Um, Up on Capitol Hill, Republicans have finally gotten down to work trying to figure out what should be in the next COVID relief bill. And they're on a tight deadline, expanded unemployment benefits and a lot of other things that were in one of the earlier bills and on July 31st. Anyway, the Republicans, to use a tired phrase, seem to be in disarray. The White House last week signaled it doesn't even want any more federal money for testing, and it does want a payroll tax cut, which won't really help people without jobs or employers who have furloughed or laid off staff because they're not paying the payroll tax right now. Democrats in the House, remember, passed their wish list for COVID relief back in May in the so-called HEROES Act. That bill includes testing money, another round of stimulus checks, more money for more firms in the Paycheck Protection Program, money for states who are losing billions of dollars in taxes because of the shutdown, and $100 billion for schools to help them retool for the pandemic. I guess the bigger question here is not just whether Republicans can agree amongst themselves, but whether they're ready to break with a president whose approval ratings are not doing terribly well. I mean, the, the Republicans well, feel a little the, bit untethered at the moment yeah, on Capitol there's no The payroll tax is not going to happen. I think we've been reporting on it, and others have been reporting on it this morning, that it's not going to be in the entry offer from McConnell and the Republicans. But, you know, there is still a lot of division over what exactly to do over unemployment benefits. And a lot of that is also still related to this, you know, little pandemic that we're going through, because when Congress, you know, pretty unanimously passed the $600 benefit in March, it was for four months. And they thought, oh, four months. And by the end of July, this thing will be done and the economy will be reopened. It'll be a V-shaped recovery and everything will be great. And they did not expect there to be a resurgence of cases in June and July. And, you know, just this morning, we found out that initial unemployment claims are going up again for the first time. So this is still going to be a big issue for them. And it's very directly tied to the pandemic. Whatever they do in unemployment, people will lose that extra payment. I believe it's this weekend. And 
you know, maybe Congress will fix it retroactively. They may also, there's a lot of speculation that they will extend some kind of federal payroll bump, but it won't be the 600 a week. It might be less, or they may phase it out over a period of months uh, or weeks or whatever they, I mean, we don't know what they're going to do, but whatever they do, it's not going to be in the next 48 hours. There, there's been muttering about doing a short-term bill. I mean, like like an appropriation. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll, do, we'll do a continuing resolution for the CARES Act. But that seems to have been killed. And, you know, and as Joanne said, the big issue with the unemployment benefits ending, this is the last week that they'll be paid, but then you have August 1st rent and mortgages due. And so even though, yes, if they, you know, get their act together sometime in August and make it retroactive, that's great. But that may mean that a lot of people are going to be late on their bills that are due August 1st. When does the eviction protection, does that stop August 1st? I think it's this Friday, I think, the the eviction. Some states have continued that, but not all states. And that has a, I mean, we should go back to health in a minute, but I mean, that has a whole lot of economic (laughs) ripple effects if if people can't pay their rent or mortgage. um, That has ripple effects for landlords in trouble and banks in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, We also know that homelessness and health are correlated, poor health are correlated. People losing their home puts them at risk for all sorts of additional health problems, including the virus. And people losing their homes in the midst of a pandemic where most of them are going to end up having to go stay with other family or stay in a shelter or stay someplace where it's going to be even harder to socially distance than it is now is not going to help. I mean, it's all, you know, we, we talk about the economy a lot right now because it's all health, because it's all linked to the pandemic. I don't know how we got into this push pull about it's either the economy or, you know, or it's the or we take care of the pandemic, because I think it's been demonstrated over the last three months that the longer you don't take care of the pandemic, the worse the economy does. I mean, Tammy, that's kind of what you're looking at these days, right? Yeah, I mean, certainly. And I mean, this is what states wanted to reopen quickly. You know, you had Florida, Georgia, Texas, Arizona, a lot of states that were late to lockdown and early to open. And now we see, you know, all of the problems that they're having and that now there are a lot of people who are losing their jobs again because they're getting shut down again. Although, you know, we can't just say that it's these states because obviously California had a really good response initially and it's now having huge problems and is shutting down again. And certainly, you know, Newsom was trying to be very careful initially. So it's not quite the blue-red divide in that sense. Yeah, it it is very much, you know, public behavior and particularly Southern California, there's sort of a beach culture and, you know, people want to be out and about and doing things and that just gives the virus some place to go. I also think that the fact that this has dragged out as long as it has is going to have additional economic effects because I think that a lot of businesses that were kind of hanging on to their workers that were staying open or that were furloughing people and in expectation that this would just be a couple of months and then we would get back to normal now that we're seeing I don't want to call it a second wave, but we're seeing these new states that are experiencing this resurgence in cases. You know, a lot of those businesses may just throw in the towel now and say, like, well, I can't hang in here for a year. I could have hung in for a few months. And so I do hear from folks who are worried about additional economic repercussions that really are the consequence of not using this early period to get the virus under control. Right. And people are definitely having lockdown fatigue. So they're just not wanting to do what they did before because we didn't do it long enough. We opened up too soon. And now it's going to be very hard to go back to that same measures that we had in March and April that did seem to work. I mean, look, I live in New York and things are better here. And I just think it's crazy. 
and I, some of you guys have heard this story, but my Aunt Minette is turning 100 in two weeks, and we were supposed to go down to Charleston, South Carolina for a party. And initially, a couple of weeks ago, I was like, wow, they're not going to want us there because, you know, we're from New York, so they're not going to want us. And then in a couple, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was like, we don't want to go there. We're doing okay, but I don't want to go to Charleston, South Carolina. It's dangerous there. So unfortunately, the party has turned into a Zoom party, but I'm hoping at some point South Carolina gets better so that I can actually go see her and wish her happy birthday in person. So one of the big problems right now is testing, both getting tests in hotspot places like Florida and Texas and Arizona and California, and getting results back pretty much anywhere because the national labs are flooded with tests from Florida and Texas and Arizona and California. One suggestion to speed up the process is something called pooled testing, where you test a whole bunch of samples at once, and if they're all negative, everybody's good to go. And if there's a positive, then you go back and retest them individually. Um, but while it sounds good in in theory, it may not work that well in practice, particularly if you have a lot of positive cases, right? Joanne, you, one of your reporters had a story about yeah, this. First of all, right now it's approved on a very limited basis. It's, we're not pooling hundreds of tests. You could pool hundreds of tests when we got to the point where the virus was mostly under control and maybe like, a, you know, an incoming college class, you could do, you know, a year from now, you could do a hundred, hundreds of tests and you may find a few straggler cases that you want to hone in on. Right now, the idea of doing hundreds of tests when we have a national positivity rate of over 8%, 8 to 9% isn't going to work. So currently, the FDA is given permission to do four, but it just isn't going to work in places where there's a lot of virus. If you do a large pool and there's positives, then you have to retest everybody. The idea of doing it limited and even these groups of four, the advantage of it is that you're not using as much of the reagents and syringes and machine time and everything else, which is in short supply and under strain given the, the surgeon cases. So um, there may be parts of the country where even pooling four or six, or whatever they allow in the future, might be a useful tool. But until we get the right down, it's not a panacea by any means. Yeah, so I, I agree. I mean, nothing is a panacea, of course. Um, but I do think that this is a technique that could be very useful um, in places where the positivity rate is relatively low. You know, Tammy was talking about New York City. Like, that's a place where actually statistically pooled testing basically could work and could save testing capacity. Uh, I also think it could be a technique that could be really useful in sort of employer or school populations where you're trying to do a lot of surveillance, but you don't expect there to be the same high positivity rate that you're getting among people who are showing up to their doctor seeking a test. So you could imagine, you know, if a college campus wants to be screening its students, you know, every month or every few weeks, uh, you could pull those tests and you could save a lot of testing capacity that way. So I think the use of this technology is going to depend on deploying it in places where you expect the rates of positive tests to be low. But there are populations like that. You know, I think another use case for this is a lot of hospitals are testing people as they come in the door for surgeries. They want to make sure that uh, people who are coming into the hospital don't have COVID so that they are separating them from COVID patients appropriately. So that's a population where you expect the positivity rate to be low, but that's taking up a lot of tests because hospitals are testing everyone who's doing an elective procedure. So that could be a place where you could use pooled testing. It's really not being used very much right now. Um, as far as I know, there's only two tests that are approved. There's uh, one from the state of Nebraska was using it for its public health surveillance early on, but now the positivity rate is so high that they've stopped using it for that population. And 
Quest, the big national commercial lab, has just gotten this approval to test four tests at a time. And I don't think they've really begun to roll it out, but it'll be interesting to see how they choose to deploy it. Yeah, but, but so it sounds like it really won't help for the current backlog. I mean, I think that that's a really big concern. I, you know, I think I talked about this last week. I got tested July 5th and I got my results back July 15th, which was really truly not very helpful. In the in the interim, the, the person who I thought I'd been exposed to turned out was a false positive, so it didn't really matter. But I quarantined until uh, it was more than two weeks since I had been with her. At least I didn't have to quarantine for the whole 10 days. But I think it could help if it's being used in the right population. So it's like not like 100% of tests everywhere around the country could be pooled, but it's possible that if you were in a community where the test positivity rate was relatively low, the tests from your area could be pooled, whereas the tests coming in from the real hotspots in Arizona would have to be run one at a time. I mean, there's there's like a lot of math behind this. And uh, the positivity rates have to actually get pretty high, like higher than 8%, I think more like 15, 20, 30% before the technique is totally useless. But um, especially with the big national labs that know where the samples are coming from, they may be able to strategically run, you know, some tests in pools, some tests one by one. It's been used before. It's been used for um, a, in a, HIV AIDS. I mean, it's a proven and useful technique. It's just a matter of where they use it, how large groups they do it, and in what circumstances. I think everybody thinks it's a useful element going forward, but it's not the solution. It's one of many tools that we're going to need. I mean, like colleges is a really good example. At the beginning, when kids show up, they're going to want to test them individually because they're coming in from all over the country. Once, you're, once they know the kids are relatively free of it, you, you know, they'd probably use pooling as, you know, for their weekly checks or something would be more useful. But on the flip side, you also have, you need rapid tests for a lot of the things that we're going to do. And so, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting is, is that the administration came out and said that they're now, well, they said this last week that they're shipping all of these point of service testing machines to the nursing homes. And, you know, they made more announcements. They're actually requiring now uh, nursing homes in high positivity states to test their staffers. And so, you know, you can't have even individual tests that take time. You know, you need to have these results right away or it's just not going to work. You know, these rapid results come in like within 15 minutes or so. So you have got a push pull there with what you need the, the testing for and with employers too. I mean, you know, if they're really going to be testing for, for people not coming in, you're going to need more rapid tests rather than waiting and quarantining people. And then by the time they get their results, they may be exposed again. And I also think all of this talk about pool test, whether or not it's a good strategy scientifically, I think it reflects the reality that we face right now, which is, you know, this many months into the pandemic, we still don't have enough tests to test all the people who need to be tested and get them results in a timely way. I mean, the labs are doing the best they can. They're in many cases running 24-hour shifts. They're shipping samples all around the country so that they can make the best use that they have of slack capacity. And yet, you know, testing turnaround is seven to 10 days in many parts of the country or longer, as your experience shows. And that is just not useful for individual decision-making for employers. It's not useful for contact tracing and uh, public health surveillance. So, you know, that's why we're moving to some of these resource-saving strategies is because we don't have enough resources to do things in the conventional way. 
All right, well, there actually is some non-COVID news this week, um, although this next topic is what I call COVID-adjacent, uh, and it's based on a story that I wrote this week. It seems that, among other things being caused by the pandemic and the accompanying economic mess, is a giant hit to the Medicare Hospital Insurance Trust Fund. Such a big hit, in fact, that it might become unable to pay all its bills, not in 2026, as the Medicare trustees projected in April, but as early as 2022 or 2023, which is really close by historical standards. Um, Normally, we'd have hospital lobbyists running around, you know, the Capitol with their hair on fire at this point. But hospitals are kind of busy with other things right now. Is there a possibility that the trust fund could go insolvent and basically nobody would be paying attention until it happens? Well, this is one reason why the Republicans don't want to do a payroll tax cut right now. That's true. Yes, because that would take even more money away from the hospital insurance. And from Social Security. And from Social Security, although Social Security is not in in as much of an emergency situation. I remember back in 1983 when Medicare was like months from not being able to pay its bills. And it was like all hands on deck. And, you know, every time we've gotten within three or four years, everybody on Capitol Hill, you know, has gone on red alert. And now there's like nothing. (laughs) Because it's it's still a few years, not months. We're trying to get through next week. (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly what one of the hospital lobbyists said to me. I mean, we're, we're, uh, I mean, Congress will come up with some kind of short-term, at least a short-term fix, but not till they get through a few other things. And also, if the economy does, you know, a if we do get this under control and people start getting jobs again, the situation may not, won't get great overnight. The damage will have been done, but the drop dead date could get pushed back. So the priority. The way you fix the Medicare trust fund in the short term is to fix the economy. And the way you fix the economy is to fix the virus. So guess what? It's all about coronavirus. (laughs) It's all about coronavirus. You should run for president. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of things that we've not been paying attention to, um, we've spent most of 2020 talking about the coronavirus, as we should. But there's still that opioid public health emergency, and it hasn't gone away while we've been focused on other things. In fact, it's getting worse. Margot, you wrote about this last week. Tell us what you found. Yes, this is just super dispiriting um, update. So, you know, for 25 years, the number of overdose deaths from drugs in the United States had been rising, and they'd gotten to this record number where they'd overtaken peak deaths from HIV, from car crashes, from, you know, basically anything that uh, you can think of. Then in 2018, the number went down and a lot of public officials took a victory lap on that. You know, a lot of Trump administration officials said this is because of all the hard work that we're doing to fight the opioid crisis. And they are doing a lot of hard work to fight the opioid crisis. There's legislation that's passed. I think there's been a lot of policymaking both at the federal and the state level. But we just got the 2019 numbers last week. And indeed, the number has ticked back up and is now a new record number of overdose deaths in 2019. 72,000 people died. It's a complicated story. The numbers keep going up, but it's not just one simple thing that's happened. So part of the reason why the numbers went up is it appears that fentanyl, this synthetic opioid that can be very dangerous because it's very potent, is becoming more popular in the western half of the United States, where it used to be really contained to the eastern part of the U.S., Um, Another thing that uh, is seen in this data is that there seem to be a lot of more people using methamphetamine and stimulants like cocaine, sometimes in combination with opioids, and that that's contributing to some drug overdoses. And my colleague, Josh Katz, who's kind of this amazing um, 
data reporter who's really taken an interest in this subject, uh, went around and was talking with state and local medical examiners to try to get death statistics from the first half of 2020. And what he found is that it looks like, based on the, the places he was able to gather information, that things are getting even worse in 2020. Um, most of those numbers are actually pre-COVID. So, you know, um, I think there is a lot of reason for concern that drug overdose deaths, which was this big public health problem that um, there was a lot of focus on and is just continuing to get worse and that, you know, it's sort of this other epidemic in the shadow of the coronavirus epidemic that's claiming a lot of American lives. And and you would have to assume that, you know, with the stress of the pandemic and the lockdowns and the enormous number of people who, you know, suddenly have lost their jobs, that this is only going to get worse and not better. That I mean, this is this has always been sort of an epidemic of despair. And there's a whole lot more despair than there was last year or the year before. So the public health experts that we talked to for our story, for the most part, agreed with that. There are a lot of factors, um, you know, to what's happening right now that might contribute to worsening drug overdoses. But there are some also some mitigating factors. Uh, the rules around medication assisted therapy have gotten loosened up a bit. So things like methadone have gotten a little bit easier for people to get over time. They don't have to go in person every single day. So there have been some emergency measures and there is some theory that perhaps the kind of staying at home, the kind of quieter pace of life, less social interaction may help some people stay in recovery. So I think, you know, it, it cuts both ways. Overall, the consensus of people that we talk to is that they think this is going to make things worse. But I also think that's an empirical question, and we're just going to have to wait for the data to come in to know for sure. All right. Well, finally this week, from the this happened last week, but after we taped the podcast file, a three-judge appeals court panel in Washington ruled that the Trump administration was within its rights to allow the broader sale to individuals of so-called short-term health plans, which are cheaper than regular Affordable Care Act plans, but also cover far fewer benefits and don't don't necessarily have to cover pre-existing conditions. What's next for this case? Might it end up before the Supreme Court too? I guess if that happened, it would be after the Supreme Court rules on the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, the community groups and the insurer group are appealing. So, you know, it is going to go continue to go forward. But, you know, the judges basically said that there was nothing that Congress did that would prevent the short-term plans from existing or from the, the lengthening of them. You know, the Affordable Care Act did not kill short-term plans, and short-term plans existed. You know, the Obama administration didn't change the rule until 2016. So that that is a problem for, I guess, the, for the judges. Yeah. I read the majority decision, and it was pretty hard to argue with. Yeah, that, that exactly. The, 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 the previous administration had tinkered with how long these might be. You know, I think originally they were allowed to, to you could have a short-term plan for up to, up to you know, 11 months and 30 days or whatever it was, just short of a year, I guess, right. 364. And then the, the Obama administration shortened it. It because they were afraid that these plans were competing unfairly with the ACA plans. And then basically the Trump ad- administration lengthened it again. But if the Obama administration, I think that the reason was if the Obama administration had the you know authority to shorten it, then the Trump administration had the authority to lengthen it. And I guess there's some question about whether this goes to the full D.C. Court of Appeals on bank. Um, right. That's or, what they're actually asking yeah. for. But ultimately, this is going to be as much a political decision as it is going to be a legal decision. I mean, I think we can all see the Supreme Court upholding this if it ever gets there for the reasons that, you know, you all just laid out. But 
if we have a Biden administration, we would more likely see maybe not the elimination of plants, but they'd be short term plants. Short-term. Would once again, be short. Maybe they would eliminate them. At some, you know, we don't know what health policy would look like a year from now under Biden if we have Biden. Um, but it, and also states. I mean, if we have governors and state legislatures changing, the regulatory apparatus in states um, is likely to change. So. This is both a legal issue and it is likely a post-November issue. This is one of those things that they could make go away without... I've always wondered why this kind of plan was carved out in the first place in the legislation from all the ACA requirements. I've tried to do a little bit of reporting to figure out like who uh, put it in the bill and I haven't been able to figure it out. But it is kind of a puzzling thing because, as you said, in the Obama administration, these plans were essentially allowed to exist for up to a year of coverage. So you know, when Congress wrote this provision of the law, they knew that these were plans that would effectively compete with the ACA compliant plans. I I think, I mean, as I recall, it's that they really did want to have bridge plans, basically, for graduating college students and people who were moving. And I think there was a fair bit of lobbying, but even the Obama administration had some justification for, for leaving them in place, albeit short term. But also there was overconfidence in the Obama administration. I mean, they had, you know, the try it, you'll like it approach to the ACA. They did not anticipate the sustained, relentless political opposition that making people think that Obamacare was bad and that you needed an alternative. This is a marketing opportunity. We've all gotten spam. We've all gotten, you know ads for these plans making it sound like they're Obamacare and somebody makes money off of them. Somebody makes a lot of money off of them. So a combination of an economic opportunity, a lobbying, somebody was lobbying for it because there was an economic opportunity and a misplaced confidence in that people really wouldn't want them very much because they would all fall in love with Obamacare once they had the first bite, left us with these these plans in, in a longer term way. And I think it's going to be a legislative and regulatory solution if there's a democratic shift, which we do not yet know, rather than legally, I think they get upheld. And we've seen hundreds of thousands of people, you know, after 2018, when they, uh, when the Trump administration lengthened the duration of them, hundreds of thousands of people have signed up. And, you know, the interesting thing will be to see whether the, again, the virus, bringing it back to our favorite topic, whether the virus is going to put more of a spotlight on it because, you know, people who have these short-term plans who think they have coverage are not only going to be hit with higher costs and higher expenses in here, but they also don't qualify for a lot of the benefits that the administration is requiring insurance companies to provide for COVID patients. So. Also, they're all now going to have pre-existing conditions, basically. It also goes back to what used to be our favorite topic before COVID, which was cost, right? Obamacare plans cost a lot. And even unless you're very heavily subsidized, if you're in that no subsidy or not a whole lot of subsidy, depending where you live, they're expensive and short-term plans are not. So, you know, that's the other, at some point we will be coming back to this issue of costs in American healthcare. Right now it's, you know, everything is on the, if not the back burner, the side burner. Um, But that's, you know, the short-term plans exist because the other plans are expensive. Everybody would want a better plan if it it was, if it was, not everybody, but most people would want good healthcare if they could afford it. Right. But of course, it's also only cheaper until you get sick. Right. But people don't think they're going to get sick. And they also don't understand. You know, if you get those ads, I mean, we would all understand, but not everybody's going to understand what a short-term plan. I mean, they're, they're designed, the marketing is designed to confuse you. You know, great plan that you can afford. And it's not a great plan and you don't find it out until you need it. I think it's two groups of people. It's 
people who don't understand what they're buying. And I think that may be a large group. And I think that's part of why the people bringing the lawsuit want to crack down on these plans, because they think that people are going to be harmed when they get ill. But I think there's also like a pretty sizable group of people who know that they're buying insurance that is inferior to ACA insurance, and they just feel like something is better than nothing. And this is all that they can afford. And I think it brings it back to the point that Joanne is making, which is, you know, the ACA plans are expensive for some certain populations in certain parts of the country. And and with a lack of affordable options, people end up uh, selecting into these kind of substandard products. All right. Well, I'm sure this is a topic we will definitely revisit. But that is the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with Pam Fessler. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Pam Fessler, my former colleague, both from NPR and way back when, Congressional Quarterly. Pam has written a fascinating new book called Carvel's Cure about the history of the federal government's only leprosarium in a remote part of Louisiana on an abandoned sugar plantation. Pam, welcome to What the Health. Yeah, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I confess, I've always been kind of curious about Carvel because it's been a line item in the Department of Health and Human Services Appropriation Bill, which I've covered since 19. 1986, and one of the few I never really dug into or understood what it was. Uh, what got you interested in this subject? Well, I got interested because of a personal reason. My father-in-law called us up when he was a, an elderly man. He's 78 years old, and he said, I have something I need to tell you. And he said he'd been keeping this secret for more than 60 years that his father had had leprosy. And when my father-in-law was a teenage boy in New York, he went to school one day, came home, and his father was gone. And the health officials, public health officials, had taken him away to some place down south, my father-in-law didn't know where, and he died there. My father-in-law never saw or spoke to his father again. So we decided, oh my goodness, when he told us this, you know, he had kept it a secret because the stigma of leprosy was so great, but he just felt that he needed to unburden himself. So when he told us this, we're like, oh my goodness, what actually happened? And so we started investigating and found out that he'd been taken to this place in Carville, Louisiana, that the federal government had run for decades, this national leprosarium, which I knew nothing about. And um, so we went down to Carville to visit. It was still functioning at the time. This was in 1998. And I discovered there's this incredible story there of patients and, and families that had kind of been torn apart because of this disease and a really fascinating history about what the public health service and the U.S. government had done in response to this um, disease. So how did the federal government end up creating what was effectively a national quarantine center for everyone found to have Hansen's disease? Well, what happened was around the turn of the last century, you know, there, there was a lot of concern and growing knowledge, as most of your listeners are well aware, about germ theory and the fact that germs, these, these tiny things that we couldn't see, caused diseases. So people were very concerned around that turn of the century uh, about diseases, and they didn't know a lot about it. But they were worried that if they didn't do something to isolate people who were sick, that these diseases would spread. And one of the biggest concerns at the time, there were 
there were many, many diseases um, that people worried about. Um, but leprosy just always had this special stigma about it, partly, I think, because of the influence of the Bible and how it was depicted as a sign of sin, that somebody had commit some kind of an offense against God. So at the same time, there was also concern about immigrants coming into the United States and bringing diseases. And one of those diseases people worried about was leprosy. So all this kind of came together and there was growing pressure on the federal government. There were, there were people with leprosy, you know, throughout the country in different places. Not a lot, you know, quite frankly. But there was this hysteria that was generated about the disease. So, so pressure began building, public pressure. We need to do something about this. The federal government needs to step in and take care of these people and isolate them and kind of get them out of our way. There was a fascinating story about a guy named John Early who became known as the nation's most famous leper. And he came to Washington, D.C. in 1908. He was a veteran of the Spanish-American War. And, and uh, in fact, your father-in-law or your... My father-in-law's father, yes. We, we believe got it from fighting in the Philippines um, after the Spanish-American War. And so this, this guy, John Early, he comes to Washington. He's, he wants to get a pension. He, but he, got, he finds he's got um, a rash on his face. So he calls a doctor in. And the doctor comes in and inspects him, has no idea what it is. And John Early goes, um, what do I got, doc? Doc, leprosy? Ha, ha, ha. And the doctor sort of freaks out and thinks, oh, well, maybe he does. And so they call in some health officials, and they immediately whisk John Early away from the hotel where he was to the banks of the Potomac River, and they stick him in a quarantine tent with armed guards, and they have no idea what to do with him. And people come from all over the place to visit this famous leper, and it's a big scandal. But what it does is show that the nation had no idea what to do with leprosy patients. And it went on and on. I mean, Early was quarantined there for months. They eventually stuck him in a house uh, with his wife and child, but they built a brick wall down the middle so that they couldn't <laughs> connect or talk to each other. I mean, it was bizarre. It, was, it, it just showed the absurdity of um, the way we respond to diseases sometimes. Ultimately, after years and years, John Early just became this big phenomenon, and it forced the federal government to do something. And Congress finally passed a law and said, we have to create a national leprosarium, which is what they did in 1917. It took a few years, took four years for them to find a place to locate it because nobody wanted it in their backyards. But ultimately, in 1921, what was the Louisiana leper home at the time became Carville. So reading this book, and I will say it's incredibly readable because you have so many wonderful stories just about individual people who came from all walks of life and all socioeconomic strata. Um, I kind of marvel at the fact that so many Many of the themes in the book, a disease with no cure that the medical community doesn't agree about, uncertainty about how contagious it is, public hysteria, could all be said about the U.S. right this very minute. Obviously, you wrote this book before the current pandemic, but have you been surprised by how much history is repeating itself? Uh, yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> every time something happens in the news, I go, oh, wait a minute, that happened in 1894, <laughs> you know, when somebody says something. There are a couple of things, especially. One was that there was a lot of 
disagreement within the medical community, even back in the late 1800s, about how contagious leprosy um, is or isn't. And as we now know today, it is very, very mildly contagious. 95% of the human race can't even get it. Um, but at the time, you know, you had these people saying, oh my goodness, it's terribly contagious. We need to do something about it. But there were doctors who said, you know, it's not that contagious. If it was, we would have seen it spread much, much further. But it was really hard for them to counter this hysteria. And um, Julie, you're going to love this because as a journalist, <laughs> you know, the newspapers kind of took uh, in the late 1800s really, you know, helped uh, fan the flames of this hysteria. And at one point, the Times-Picayune um, printed an editorial um, just bemoaning the fact that doctors actually disagreed over whether or not it was serious. And they said, when doctors disagree so radically on matters of such great public importance, the only remedy is to appeal to common sense and reason and enact proper protection for the people's health. And their solution was that the state of Louisiana should just declare that leprosy was contagious so that they could quarantine people. <laughs> Just make it a law. And a lot, yeah, yeah. I mean, a, lo a lot of these people were actually just picked up bodily and taken to Carville, right? Right, over the decade. Honestly, some people did go there. Um, many people actually went there voluntarily because they really had nowhere else to go. They were, you know, scorned by their families and their communities. And at least there, they did get very loving care. The Daughters of Charity were the nurses. Um, they, they tried to take care of the patients. And it was actually quite a big, beautiful uh, place on an old uh, plantation along the banks of the Mississippi. But some people did not go willingly at all. And they were, in fact, there were some people were taken in shackles. They were locked in boxcars of trains to be brought there. One man told me, I interviewed one of the patients right before he died, and he said they'd actually put a bag over his head to, to take him on a train to bring back after he had escaped once. Um, and that was the other thing. If people escaped, if they were caught, they were brought back and they were put, there was a jail inside of Carville where they were kept. You know, they had sentences of, you know, like 60 days for a first offense, 120 days for a second offense. So it was a pretty extraordinary. And on, in government records, these people were called inmates. Even though they were patients. Exactly. I mean, through, through no fault of their own, they were imprisoned and they were torn away from their families. And many of them were also took aliases. They were advised to take aliases because the shame and stigma were so great that they didn't want their families to know. Obviously, finding a cure or first treatment and then basically a cure for, for Hansen's disease changed sort of the dynamic of the place, right? Exactly. And, and you know, it evolved. And I, I hate to paint too negative a picture of it because Ultimately, bringing all these people together, as I say, first they were treated well. There was also a lot of research that was done there, especially when the federal government took over, trying to find a cure. And the patients, from all I can tell, very willingly wanted to try experimental treatments, anything. I mean, they were as desperate to find something to cure the disease. And in the 1940s, the chief medical officer there, who especially actually was TB, saw that there was this one drug that they had tried to use on TB, but it didn't work. And so he thought, well, there's some similarity in the diseases. Let's try it on the patients who have leprosy or, or Hansen's disease, as we call it today. And lo and behold, it worked. I mean, it worked slowly. It didn't work for everyone. And it took many years to kind of perfect 
the combination of drugs, these cell phone drugs. Uh, the first one was Promen, and it was the beginning of what we now use, quite frankly, today to cure and treat leprosy. And so what that did is the patients started getting better, and they were still confined but they're like, wait a minute. I mean, this is really ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it was bad enough before, but now we know it's not contag that contagious. We know there's a treatment for it. You know, we need to go. And they started fighting for their rights. And ultimately, the laws were changed and they were allowed to go. So you, one of the things that sort of jumped out at me, a lot of your research, you were able to find things because there were local reporters there at lots of places, at lots of pivotal moments. You know, I wonder if in 100 years when somebody is trying to pick through and write the history of this pandemic, there are so many fewer local reporters. How important was sort of finding these newspaper accounts to your being able to actually stitch this story all together? Um, it was very important, actually, and especially the stories about individual people. <laughs> Although I have to admit, one of the surprises to me in this was that I would read a lot of local newspaper stories back from the turn of the century, and they were diametrically opposed to some of the reports. <laughs> so I really had to kind of weed through a lot of information to try and figure out exactly what probably really did happen. One of the main sources of information was the patient newspaper. The patients themselves started a newspaper. It was started by this patient named Stanley Stein, who was, you know, really brilliant and became a crusader for the rights of leprosy patients. It started out as kind of an in-house publication with the menu for Sunday night's dinner and the movie schedule. But they gradually started printing patient columns questioning what the government was doing, why were they there. They also pulled together a lot of information about research that was going on all around the country and the world into leprosy. And, and they really became advocates that I think it's probably one of the first patient advocacy movements, at least that I know of, where they really campaigned for themselves and to try and explain what this disease was to the public and to win back their rights and dignity and respect. Well, it is a really interesting read and rather uh, important right now. Pam Fessler, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Julie. I love being here. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Tammy, why don't you go first this week? Okay, I chose a story that, you know, hit pretty close to home. It's a New York Times story by Brian Rosenthal that came out earlier this week. Again, being in New York City, we got hit with the virus very quickly. I mean, you know, there was all of these terrible stories and terrible images of all of the emergency rooms and hospitals being overrun. And all of these field hospitals or pop-up temporary hospitals that were being built, including one in my local park uh, near me in the Bronx, which actually, again, was never actually used and never went beyond a couple of lights and fences. I guess that's maybe a benefit because in this New York Times story, it showed that in Queens, at a time when Queens Hospital Center, you know, the lead is just so telling, it had a capacity, the emergency department had a capacity of 60, but on its worst night, it had 180 patients. And then only a few miles away, there was a temporary hospital that had opened up that was just really basically not seeing anybody. I mean, it only treated three patients from Queens a Hospital Center over the, the month that it stayed open. And overall, it only treated 79 patients. And that's, you know, mainly because of a lot of bureaucracy and challenges. And, you know, it wasn't allowed to take people with fevers, which I 
don't understand at all. So it just basically showed not only a waste of money, but even more importantly, how many people could it have saved had it been run better. But of course, at the same time, we're talking about resources and everything being done very haphazardly because everything had to be done so quickly. And we'd never encountered anything like this before. Well, one would hope that the states that are being hit now can look at some of the things that happened. Joanne. This is a story from the Washington Post with a very long but also incisive headline. Trump keeps boasting about passing a cognitive test, but it doesn't mean what he thinks it does. It's by Ashley Parker and William Wan. It goes into this test that Trump has begun boasting about again. We're pretty sure he's still talking about the test he took two years ago. We don't think there's been a new test. You know, this cognitive test does not show he is a stable genius, as he has said. It just shows he doesn't have, you know, detectable disease like Alzheimer's or another form of clinical dementia. It is not an IQ test. It is not a great president test. It is just a simple initial screen for dementia. But, you know, if you haven't seen the clip last night of him talking about his test, you should go find that clip. Actually, I love the Chris Wallace comment, which is where he said, they show you a picture of an animal. Can you name this? And it's an elephant. Margo. I wanted to recommend another story from The Times by Elizabeth Preston. It's called During Coronavirus Lockdown, Some Doctors Wondered Where Are the Preemies? And it's this fascinating scientific mystery, really, where in multiple countries around the world, premature births have fallen, and especially births of like really premature babies, the ones that are the most fragile and have uh, the most uh, difficulty in life. And the doctors don't really know uh, what's going on, but they think that it may be that this kind of uh, quieter stay-at-home version of life that we're having right now is leading to less premature birth. So this is definitely a subject that needs to be studied more, but it does seem like we've been talking about all this doom and gloom, and perhaps this is a nice silver lining that we're seeing during the pandemic is that uh, some children are being born uh, into healthier circumstances, and maybe they're going to have better outcomes. Yeah, well, we're seeing all these people who were infants during the Spanish flu, who seemed to still be alive at age 102. <laughs> so true. maybe there's something about being born during a pandemic. Uh, my story is from the Washington Post op-ed page. It's called Keep an Eye on Your Coronavirus Budget by Lena Wen, uh, who's an emergency room doctor and former Baltimore City Health Commissioner. And while we've all seen those charts that sort of rank activities from lowest risk, like taking a walk outside, to highest risk, being in a crowded bar, Lena actually lays out a strategy for how to live with the pandemic. It's basically like Weight Watchers. You get a certain number of points. So you can do some higher risk things like going to the gym or getting your hair cut as long as you budget for it. And obviously you can do more or fewer things depending on how widespread the virus is in your community. So obviously if you're in New York now, you get more points than, you know, if you're in Southern California. But I find it really useful as a way to think about what you do. And I think we've all been doing it anyway. It's like, oh my goodness, I want to go do this, but that's potentially dangerous. And it is, it's, you know, sort of like I can have a cookie, but I can only have one cookie today. I I highly recommend it. That is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our intrepid producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Margo? At Sanger Katz. Joanne. At Joanne Cannon. Tammy. 
at Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.